This week on the Defense Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the biggest misconception about AI on the battlefield. The United States military has had systems where the machine pushes the button for decades, and so have dozens of militaries around the world. But those, those autonomous weapon systems are being fielded in very specific operational conditions. And the Army's technology blueprint for the future. Every decision that we're making in the Army today, we're looking at it from the lens of, you know, how can we apply it to current operations and then take those lessons learned and then spiral into the future state for future modernization. It's Wednesday, June 22nd, 2022. Welcome to the Defense Scoop podcast. Every week you'll learn what's going on in defense technology. I'm the host of the Defense Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Defense Department would test new ways to retain rights to data in software contracts under a provision in the new chairman's mark in the House Armed Services version of the National Defense Authorization Act. The Pentagon would stand up the pilot within a year and a half of its passage in the NDAA. The Hask will mark up the bill in full on Wednesday. Another provision in the Hask chairman's mark would train troops on information operations. One of the focuses of the training would be on using information in a battlefield environment. More on some of the other provisions in the NDAA later in the program. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other Defense Scoop stories at fedscoop.com. An update is coming to the Defense Department's policy on humans in or out of the loop in using artificial intelligence tools in warfare. That update should clear up some confusion about what the policy is today. Greg Allen's director of the AI Governance Project and senior fellow in the Strategic Technologies Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He's former director of strategy and policy at the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center in the Defense Department. Greg, welcome. It's good to see you again. First time to talk to you out of the building. So welcome to the program. What's the confusion that exists now regarding in or out of the loop that you're writing about? Welcome. Thanks very much for the opportunity to be here. It's great to be back. The basic misconception, and it's a surprisingly widespread conception, even inside the Department of Defense, is that the existing policy on autonomy and weapon systems, which is called Department of Defense Directive 3000.09, actually requires a human in the loop for uh, autonomy and weapon systems. And this is a misconception that words human in the loop never actually appear in the policy. And it is not DOD policy that weapon systems have to have this. Um, What is specified in the policy is that the systems have to use or have to enable operators and commanders to utilize appropriate levels of human judgment. And the policy also says that for certain use cases of autonomy and weapon systems, there is an additional technical and procedural barrier where you have to get the approval of some very senior folks in order to develop the system and then again to field the system. And so it is certainly the case that a weapon system that is designed to require a human in the loop is exempt from this additional review process. It is not the case that all weapon systems have to have that. And that is the primary misconception. What is the implication of the actual policy itself as it's written on the way that the department now writes requirements, acquires systems, uses those systems potentially in combat at some point in time, and what is the potential benefit to clear that policy up for all of those operational tactical type of situations, Greg? 
Well, I think it's, it's worthwhile to go back to when this policy was first created. The DOD policy on autonomy and weapon systems is a decade old. It was originally published in 2012. And at that time, progress in computing and AI uh, was not really what it is now. The sort of modern AI revolution around machine learning also dates back to 2012, uh, but the policy predates it. And what the folks were trying to recognize is that increasing computer performance is enabling greater degrees of automation and greater degrees of autonomy across all of these functions. And some types of autonomy and weapon systems are quite old. Missile defense has had highly automated and autonomous modes since the 1970s. But we also recognize that as computers become more capable, we're going to ask them to do more things. And certain types of use cases of autonomous uh, weapon systems you know, pose different types of risks, whether that's operational risk, safety risk, or strategic stability risk. And so the Department of Defense was looking for a policy that could appropriately manage all of these risks and make sure that they were taken into account, both when weapon systems were in development and when they were in fielding. And the primary mechanism that they had for doing that was adding this senior review process for any part of the military that was proposing to develop an autonomous weapon system. And I want to emphasize here, when we talk about autonomy and weapon systems, there's lots of different functions and features being performed by any weapon system. Some of them can be autonomous and have been autonomous for a long time, like in guidance and navigation. But that's not what the policy is talking about. What the policy is talking about is specifically autonomy in the ability to select and engage targets without further intervention by a human operator. So that's the distinction. That's what we mean when we say that a given weapon system is autonomous. Not everybody who's out there talking uh, either in the media or in the, uh, in the international community is using the words the same way. And that's part of the confusion that we're trying to solve. So as the DOD you know, passed this policy 10 years ago, it's up for a mandatory review and update, which always happens after 10 years. And I think this is a really good opportunity for the Department of Defense to do two things. First, to actually address some of these confusions and misconceptions about what the policy is, how it works, and what it does. But the second is to address things that have also entered the policy picture such as the revolution in artificial intelligence and machine learning, and make sure that those are adequately addressed in the policy. The policy, as it's currently written, doesn't even touch on AI. And partly that's appropriate because not all types of autonomous weapons functionality require machine learning, but partly that's a problem because there's a lot of other policies out there now, such as the DOD AI ethics principles, that do speak about uh, what it means to be an AI-enabled system. And so this is a good opportunity for the department to clarify its policies, define things that need to be formally defined, and to help get the overall department on a strategy for the greater incorporation of autonomy and weapon systems. It also strikes me as an opportunity to just deal with issues as some of those that you've just laid out where this policy has been overcome by events. You write in this piece, uh, the position of Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics, which is one of the sign-offs that you referred to earlier, doesn't even exist anymore. The job responsibilities right. <laughs> of, of that person are split uh, under in the two positions 
in the department. Um, what are the most important things that you think that a, a, an updated, tuned-up policy should address? You make it clear you don't think this is a, a broad rewrite, uh, the way that you put it, but a, a tune-up sounds like it's in order, Greg. Yeah, so I, I think you're, you've made a great point here about how there's some sort of minor features of the policy that do need to be addressed. The responsibilities that are currently assigned to the defunct undersecretary position need to be either, you know, uh, sent over to the new positions that replaced that or split somehow between them. Um, that's not super important, but it does have to get done. The sort of broader opportunity, I think, to improve the policy and while there are some out there that just sort of want to ban this entire category of weapon systems, um, I don't think that's actually helpful. And the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence also concluded that that was neither appropriate nor, war nor warranted, given where we are. But the changes that the policy could make that would be really helpful is, as I said, to define what it means to be an AI-enabled weapon system and how that does or does not affect the overall uh, uh, policies requirements. And then the second thing that's really important about AI systems is that the software for building an AI system is really never done. If you're building and deploying an AI system, what you constantly need and must be doing is hoovering up additional training data, feeding that back into the learning algorithm of the system to improve performance and also just maintain performance. Uh, as the operational conditions are constantly changing, you need new training data that reflects those new operational conditions. So my point here is that artificial intelligence software requires constant updates, but the senior review process as it's currently written assumes software that is sort of frozen in time, uh, the way that older traditional computing software systems might not get software updates, you know, except once every seven years, which is its own category of problems that the DOD needs to deal with. Um, and so my recommendation for how to update the policy is not to require that every single update to the software requires its own execution of the senior review process, but rather that the senior review process will review and approve the processes for gathering additional training data, for incorporating that new training data into the model, and for the test and uh, evaluation procedures that will be used to certify the performance as compliant with relevant standards in the DOD. So the, the senior review process would say that, yes, assuming that all of your updates occur under these conditions and using these processes, then uh, you are allowed to continue updating the system. However, these other types of updates, perhaps providing new features or functionalities, they can clarify what types of updates would or would not trigger an additional round of the senior review process. The bottom line here, Greg, it seems to me is the discussion surrounding, is it a human or is it an algo that decides to put ordinance on target? And the policy is one thing, and the implementation or execution is another thing. I don't think I've ever talked to a member of the uniformed military uh, on or off the record who has said that he or she is comfortable yet with the machine pushing the button to use uh, the vernacular. Is well, this a we gotta be we got to be clear about what conditions that is taking place in, because the fact is. Uh, the United States military has had systems where the machine pushes the button for decades, and so have dozens of militaries around the world. But those, those autonomous weapon systems 
are being fielded in very specific operational conditions, missile defense, um, you know, counter swarm attacks on ships, the, the close in weapon system of the, you know, the Navy or the Aegis, they have autonomous uh, systems, but they're used for static defense of manned platforms, which is one of the exempted categories. And so the question is not whether or not we're going to have autonomy and weapon systems. We and almost all of our allies already have autonomous weapon systems. The point is, as we expand the aperture of operational use cases in which we're comfortable with more and more autonomy, how are we going to ensure that we do that in a responsible and safe manner? And I think an update to the 3000.09 policy is a really good opportunity to, to clarify how we're going to go about doing that. And, and we're starting from a pretty good position. It also strikes me, too, that it's more important to not take options off the table than it is to respond to whether some one person or group of people has a comfort level of using a, an a autonomous weapon or not. Well, I, I think it's, it's, it's helpful the way you just framed it, because the fact is, in Ukraine, we are currently witnessing what could be right new operational use cases in wartime uh, for autonomous weapon systems, namely the offensive use of AI-enabled autonomous weapon systems. If that happens in Ukraine, and I think there's a decent likelihood that it will, right, that will be an unprecedented step. And I pointed out in an, another piece that I wrote recently um, that while there were some reports that Russia was using AI-enabled offensive autonomous weapon systems, I actually didn't find those credible. But there are other weapon systems in the Russian arsenal that do claim to have those capabilities. Uh, these are kamikaze drones that traditionally are remotely piloted, um, but the Russian weapons manufacturers claim that they have autonomous functionality. And as more and more jammers get deployed to the fight in Ukraine on all sides, the pressure to take the remote pilot out of the equation for these kamikaze drones is going to grow. And the point is that the Russians have uh, weapons in their arsenal. Uh, in fact, weapons that have been deployed to Ukraine, they just haven't been used in autonomous mode yet. And so this really may be the moment where we see these new use cases. And so the Department of Defense, I think, has a policy that allows it to respond to a changing international system to communicate to Russia that their actions will have consequences. Um, and I think that's the kind of flexibility that we want. Fascinating conversation, Greg. I really appreciate your time today, and I look forward to continuing it next time you're on the program. Hey, thanks for the opportunity to be here. Great conversation. You can find a link to Greg's work in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Defense Scoop podcast on next week's program, Inside the Air Force's Cyber Operations. Winston Beauchamp, the Deputy Chief Information Officer for the Air Force, is on next week's Defense Scoop podcast. You can get that show next Wednesday, June 29th at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Army is pushing its cloud capability, like all of the services, to the edge. Dr. Raj Ayers, the Chief Information Officer of the Army at the UiPath Together Summit, he tells Uma Natarajan of UiPath about the Army's journey to the edge and to automation. We had, you know, conducted some experiments and some initial prototyping and pilots with a tactical edge cloud. We have been working with Starlink to look at, you know, establishing uh, LEO and MEO satellite communications for uh, network resiliency. And we said, you know what? 
I mean, let's stop talking about it. Let's actually put it to use. And so, so we made a concerted effort that, you know, when the 18th Airborne deployed uh, to Poland and Germany um, here, in the, you know, uh, this year, earlier this year, you know, we said, you know, let's stop talking about it. Let's actually try this out. And quite frankly, what we found was our ability to get technology in the hands of our soldiers rapidly, right? Not having to go through the bureaucratic acquisition process, but how we were able to do that at the speed of war. And then how quickly we were able to operationalize that was something that was just eye-opening to a lot of folks. And it was, I, I can tell you there was this aha moment in the Army where people said, really, we can do all of that stuff? Right? And so, um, so we were convinced that, you know, we can truly, I mean, you know, we can, we can take these technologies, these commercial technologies we have today, um, and then as part of our digital transformation strategy, actually truly bring it into current operations. Um, and then, again, the results have been tremendous. I mean, from a bandwidth perspective with Starlink, we went from 3 meg bandwidths to 300, right? Uh, huge game changer in terms of how much data now that we could share across the network uh, between the core, the division, and all the deployed forces. And so, so again, so for in terms of you know, you're answering your question, every decision that we're making in the Army today, we're looking at it from the lens of you know, how can we apply it to current operations, and then take those lessons learned, and then spiral into the future state for future modernization. Yeah. So, like a follow-on question to that, and this is like very focused on automation and AI and emerging tech. What are your thoughts on how automation and AI is going to be the future of how the army goes to war? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so again, you know, we have to look at it from two perspectives, right? One is, you know, the institutional army, right, that, that supports the, the soldier, and then the war fighting function. And I can tell you on the institutional side, you know, we've, um, you know, we're still, uh, I mean, we've, we've kicked off several uh, uh, efforts on robotic process automation. UiPath has been a key partner in, in that journey. And I can tell you, you know, whether it's the CFO's office at headquarters um, with what they're doing with uh, RPA, you know, to meet audit readiness requirements, um, you know, legacy data conversion from some legacy systems to GFIBS, which is our ERP system. Um, our contracting folks that are using, you know, RPA to do what's this thing called, you know, determination of responsibility. Um, you know, there's all of these use cases that have, you know, where we've been able to, you know, use RPA to build bots, but at a, at a, at a micro level, right? It's really not at the scale that I need it to be across the Army. So, so, so our effort this year really is to look at scaling that effort across the Army and so one of the things we're doing really is to establish um, or reduce that barrier to entry. So what we found when talking to our commands and units is that you know, the hardest problem for them is not identifying the use cases for RPA, it's getting that environment stood up where they can go build a bot, orchestrate it, manage it, monitor it, right? And so every time they, you know, a command wanted to do that, they had to go build their own implementation, go through the accreditation process, get an ATO, that took them six to nine months. So there's six to nine months of lead time and, and lots and lots of monies and contractor support just to get an environment stood up before they actually go build a bot. And so my job as a CIO to be, is to be that easy button for people, right? So what we're doing this year is to build that platform, a UiPath RPA platform in the CRME cloud, and then you know, enable then all of the other Army commands and units to come in, then leverage that platform, and then really start to build, use DevSecOps principles to build bots, 
right? Absolutely. And so, so you know, when you're doing this in an accredited environment, the bot now, you know, you you, you know, you can build it rapidly. You can deploy it because you're now in a, in a fully accredited environment. And we will have the the you know, we, we can treat it as a non-person entity. So we will have the integration to our ICAM system to be able to, you know, ensure that we have the right authentication and authorization for the bot. And so, so doing all this stuff enables then, you know, mission owners to be able to uh, rapidly build bots and deploy them. So that's on the institutional side. On the warfighting side, I, you know, I believe a huge untapped potential really is in JADC2. Right? Because if you look at JADC2, the, the biggest pain point that we have is you know, <clears throat> looking at a number of legacy systems that have data and then you know, exposing them and bringing them into a common operating picture. Today, I can tell you in the Army, we have 11 different common operating pictures you know, that any commander has to go look at for, you know, for a single source of truth. And that is a lot of swivel chairing. Right? And so I think it's time to kill the swivel chair. Right, we're we're there, and so so you know, and again, these legacy systems are at a point where you know they don't have APIs exposed. You know, it's expensive to go modify them. They don't they don't all comply with the with the appropriate standards that we need them to. So it becomes a very very painful manual effort to be able to look at data and then synthesize them and bring them into a common operating picture. Gosh, what if we had a bot that could do that? Right. So when you look at sensor to shooter. And, and we did that full mission threat analysis end to end. What we found was the most time it took, you know, in that in that end to end process was all of these manual steps, right? Yeah. And so if we can make this repeatable and we can build a bot to be able to do that, I would, I, you know, we can now bring this from. We already brought it down from hours to minutes. I think we can go from minutes to seconds uh, in terms of condensing that kill chain uh, for sensor to shooter. Awesome, awesome. So I'm going to ask you a different question. So one of the things that I like, I work with the Air Force, I work with the Navy, and I've looked at like all the federal civilian agencies. One of the things every agency struggles with is enabling the workforce of the future, right? Training and enablement. What are your thoughts around how do you get the big army to really get behind training and enablement and get them used to new technology? Yeah, absolutely. So, so there are two technologies that we've called out in the new Army Digital Human Capital Strategy that just came out this week. And one is low-code, no-code programming. The second is RPA, right? So I specifically highlighted these two as the way in which we're going to transform our digital workforce. And, and the reason for this is because, you know, Again, we're the barriers to entry, you know, we've, we're removing them. We will have removed them by this year. So we can truly now democratize, you know, these kinds of solutions in the hands of real users with minimal, you know, training and software development skills, yep. right? Now we can truly turn these tools on to the hands of soldiers and, and civilians and, and have them go, you know, build these at their unit command level. The second thing that this enables us to do is, you know, really get to, uh, inside the army some kind of crowdsourcing effort, right? Mm -hmm. Because if we can get, you know, pools of people trained and certified, even certified on yep. these technologies, then, you know, they, we can really turn them loose across the army where they can go after all of these use cases across the army to go build uh, bots or applications. So. So that so that is the 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 foundation for what we're what we have laid out in the new human capital strategy and some of these tools that we are acquiring putting in place and the uh, the education and training efforts will follow this year and next 
to be able to truly democratize it. That's awesome. So one of the things that like I'm like really passionate about is democratizing automation. And even AI at some point, right? Like AI is something that I think is going to evolve over the next few years. Um, your thoughts on AI, specifically AI and like building specific machine learning models for like, you know, just like helping the army as they like, you know, get into more sophisticated technologies that our enemies are using. Yeah, so I always tell people that, you know, if you look at kind of like the AI maturity model, mm -hmm. right, that very first step is actually nothing but robotic process automation. Yep. So, you know, so, so while we have a long way to mature to a general purpose AI, mm -hmm. you know, we can, we're taking baby steps now to, you know, starting with RPA to doing some machine learning. And there's some plenty of use cases that, you know, we have across the Army today. And I'll give you one on the cybersecurity side, mm -hmm. right? Um, today, you know, we have technologies that we have implemented in the Army to look for kind of anomalous behavior on our networks. Mm -hmm. And so this is based upon, you know, looking at standard behavior, looking at, you know, you know uh, looking at patterns. And then when we look, when we find kind of spurious behavior, we can tell that something's not right. So, so this is based on predictive analytics, based on certain rules and machine learning, and we have you know, our Gabriel Nimbus big data platform that we have in place that's able to ingest you know, literally petabytes of data to be able to do this kind of analysis today. So that's a little bit of machine learning. We have, again, some standard algorithms can, that can do that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, if you, uh, if you, then if you look at other you know, use cases like predictive maintenance, you know, how do we make sure that you know, based upon prognostics and diagnostics coming from our tanks and helicopters, mm -hmm we're able to prime the supply chain to be able to get the right part to the right place at the right time, mm -hmm. right? So again, these are, these are things that based on data, you know, we can have, you know, we have algorithms today to be able to uh, do supply chain planning and supply chain management. Um, so RMF is another perfect example yep. of, you know, it's a very, very bureaucratic manual process heavily, you know, in, in, very intensive in terms of, you know, the data collection and, and, and different systems that you have to use to get, to put data in there. You know, so as we start to, op, you know, re-engineer these processes, we're taking the opportunity to automate them and then looking at ways in which you can get to predictive. Yeah. So while we're doing that, as part of our modernization platforms for our big, you know, efforts such as, you know, long-range hypersonics, you know, you know, we just, you know, um, deploy MSHORAD, um, the integrated visual augmentation system or IVAS, mm -hmm. uh, the synthetic training environment. So all of these, you know, modernization efforts that the Army um, uh, has underway and, and we're, we're building and we're, we're deploying them, there's components of AI built into all of them. And the reason for that is because we know that every one of these things, not only are sensors themselves, but have the ability to fuse data from sensors out there, right? Yeah. So, so when you have to work with this kind of, you know, big data environment and to be able to, you know, come up with good recommendations to the commander, you know, you have to do this kind of tipping and queuing with large data sets. And the best way to do that is using machine learning and AI. It will never take away the human yep. from the loop. But we're now, you know, reducing that problem space to something that now, you know, our experts can truly come in and, and make decisions. Raj Iyer, the Chief Information Officer of the Army at the UiPath Together Summit. You can find a link to watch the video of that entire conversation in today's show notes at DefenseScoopPodcast.com.
The intelligence community's advanced research arm is one step closer to virtual immersive environments. And some surprises have popped up in Congress's authorization routine. John Harper's managing editor at Defense Scoop. Brandy Vincent's a reporter for Defense Scoop. Brandy, I start with you. What is a virtual immersive environment and who's looking for one? Thanks so much for having us, Francis. Um, so we are talking about IARPA's new walkthrough rendering from images of varying altitude or REVA program. Um, ultimately, they aim to develop software algorithm-based systems that can perform site models of scenarios that are uncharted where members of the military or law enforcement um, or humanitarian and disaster responders um, can't really see or prepare for what would be there. They're looking to essentially use advancements in artificial intelligence and machine learning that are evolving right now to develop new models that will enable um, such operators to be able to see those uncharted places without being there. It's a fascinating possibility because it's not just first responders, but I imagine tremendously valuable to IARPA's colleagues in the intelligence community to be able to see, I'm using air quotes, where you're going to be before you're actually able to get there in challenging environments, this got to be tremendously valuable. Absolutely. And what's interesting about this project, too, is while um, IARPA, DARPA, a lot of the government's research hubs are often focused on very um, forward looking research, they're already thinking about how they could field REVA in three and a half years um, once this project comes together. Um, Another interesting point I learned in reporting for it is it might be the first IARPA project I've ever heard of that was inspired by someone's tween child who uh, the program manager that's behind this project actually couldn't find their teen and couldn't find a location to actually find them and was able to discuss with them over the phone a place where they could meet since that location had changed, but got thinking, how would this actually play out? What are you expecting to learn about this in the coming week? And what does the timeline look like overall, separate from that three and a half year outline that you just laid out? We're going to learn a lot this week because um, it is this week when the broad agency announcement for funding launches. Um, that document will likely be large and have a lot of information for any interested proposals. And then going forward, um, it will unfold over the next 42 months. Um, so we can expect to potentially see some real transition or potential fielding um, in about three and a half years. Uh, John Harper, welcome. It's the House's turn at the National Defense Authorization Act this week. Uh, the Senate's mark is done. Um, what are you watching as far as the potential differences between what the House is uh, working on now and what the Senate's already finished with? One thing I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye on is anything related to a joint all-domain command and control. Um, the SASC version uh, of the NDAA has a, a provision that would uh, require the Pentagon to establish a JADC2 joint force headquarters in the Indo-Pacific, for example. And I'm looking to see if the HASC version will have something similar and if not, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out down the road once the House and Senate go into conference to try to come up with kind of a common version of the legislation that they could pass and 
send to uh, President Biden's desk. You have a story on fedscoop.com right now about the chairman's mark of the Hask's version of the National Defense Authorization Act. Did you see anything in there that that indicated that that's something the House is looking at now? Or is that something that could come through as the markup process uh, uh, continues? I didn't see anything um, identical to that in the chairman's mark. So I'm curious to see if the full committee will include that in their version. Uh, one thing that I did find interesting in the chairman's mark um, is uh, his proposal for a new uh, DOD pilot program to come up with new and novel ways uh, of implementing uh, uh, software uh, data rights uh, negotiations, um, which is uh, you know an, a really important thing when it comes to Pentagon efforts to upgrade their systems, buy new software, which is becoming more and more critical for DOD operations. Um, so uh, that's definitely something that I'm going to keep an eye on going forward uh, once the, uh, the House and Senate reconcile their respective versions of the legislation. I think that'll be something also that industry and the acquisition community will certainly be keeping a close eye on because that's a big deal for both of them. All right. Um, two events you're following this week have something in common. The speakers at both uh, both have the last name of Brown, uh, General Brown, General C.Q. Brown, the chief of staff of the Air Force and the director soon to be outgoing of the Defense Innovation Unit, Michael Brown. What do you expect either or both of them to say? I definitely think uh, they'll both be focusing on new technologies uh, in the case of the Air Force. Uh, I'm looking to see if uh, we hear anything new on joint uh all domain command and control, which I referenced earlier, uh, anything to do with uh, robotic wingmen or their uh, next generation air dominance program, um, as well as any efforts to uh, integrate more commercial technologies into the Air Force. And I'm sure that when uh, DIU director uh, Mike Brown speaks later in the day, um, that he's going to talk about the Defense Innovation Unit's efforts to bring more commercial technologies to the Defense Department. Um, you, you know, that's something that uh, DIU really focuses on. And I know, you know, in the past, he's expressed some frustration about how the Pentagon, uh, you know, perhaps hasn't been as aggressive as he would like in implementing uh, some of those uh, technology adoption. So that's definitely something I'm going to be keeping an eye out for when he speaks. John Brandy, great reporting as always. Thanks very much. Thanks, Francis. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about all these stories and see the coverage throughout the coming week with the links in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. The Defense Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Defense Scoop Podcast, leave a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Defense Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Defense Scoop Podcast, back next Wednesday. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.